0: W Media Spy Talk, a podcast at the intersection of intelligence, foreign policy, national security and military operations. We must act on every lead. We will find the middlemen, the suppliers, and the buyers. Our message to proliferators must be consistent and it must be clear. We will find you and we're not going to rest until you are stopped. That of course was President George W. Bush reacting to news in 2006 that North Korea had obtained a nuclear weapon. The CIA had been tasked years earlier to uproot the nuclear black market operation that had allowed not just North Korea, but Iran and Libya to get access to the weapon of Armageddon, whose godfather was a Pakistani nuclear scientist, A.Q. Khan. The CIA put a veteran operations officer, James Lawler, in charge of the A.Q. Khan nuclear takedown team. Khan was eventually forced into house arrest in Pakistan, which treated him as a national hero. After his retirement, Lawler wrote an espionage thriller, Living Lies, about penetrating the Iranian nuclear weapons program. His latest novel is In the Twinkling of an Eye, about recruiting a spy at the heart of a covert Russian North Korean genetic bioweapons program. He is currently writing his third espionage novel, The Traitor's Tale, which is about treachery and treason deep within the CIA. And he is with us today. Jim Lawler, welcome to Spy Talk. You've often described yourself, I heard you say this during a conference last May, described yourself as a sociopath. Now, I always took that as kind of a self-deprecating, even sarcastic version of what a case officer does, which is to say recruits and manipulates an agent. But sociopath, you doubled down on that in an email with me the other day. What do you mean that you were a sociopath or are a sociopath?
1: Well, I know my psychiatrist friend's they argue with me about whether I'm truly a sociopath or not. Uh, the uh, although one one psychiatrist did say, "Lawler, you're nothing but a sociopath," but one within lanes, the lanes being U.S. laws. I, I I do use it somewhat as in a self-deprecating sense, mainly that I was always pretty relentless when I was going after someone. A uh, another listener recently though said, "Maybe I'm not a sociopath, but what he described as a dark." empath maybe that's more because Mm -hmm. i i do have a high degree of empathy when i'm recruiting people and yes sometimes we go in dark places so maybe dark empath is a better description than sociopath
0: and let's circle back to what you mean by going after someone this is we're not talking about uh you know, uh, action thrillers here where you are got a gun in your hand and you're chasing someone down a dark alley or being chased. We're talking about recruiting. Let's talk about how intelligence works as opposed to the movies, which is to say a CIA case officer like yourself is deployed to go out and recruit foreigners to work for the United States, to turn coat, to work against their country or regime. Um, and you do that by looking for likely spies and then sidling up to them, getting to know them, recruiting them, eventually recruiting them and then running them as agents. Is that right? You want to expand on that at all?
1: I think you've got it 100 percent correct. I mean, for one thing, I know you've done it yourself in Vietnam, so you have an intimate fam- familiarity with what we do. Um, I, but it, you're right. I mean, I was focused relentlessly on a target. I was looking for stresses in their lives. I always tell folks, you know, I never recruited a happy person, not once in my life. You don't recruit happy people. You recruit people under stress. And I used to be a rock climber. And the way you climb rock is you look for cracks, the crack system, where you can put your fingers and toes. And you can't do that from a long way off. You have to get close to the rock and study it and look for those cracks. And you can't climb bald rock unless you're a fly or Spider-Man. And so people though are so similar they all have crack systems. Every one of us has a crack system. And over time I can tell what those cracks are, what the stresses are. And my talent was being able to spot the crack, get in and relieve the stress. And so that's that's what I did. Now it's it's ironic when I when I say sociopath one of my favorite genres of reading are thrillers that involve hitmen. So go figure. you know, maybe I was a hitman for the CIA, but not a not a uh, violent hitman, but a recruiting hitman.
0: On a further educational plane, what do you mean go after? How do you find someone uh, to spy for the United States?
1: So when I first started, case officers were responsible for doing their own what we call targeting. We would have certain intelligence questions that the uh, headquarters wanted or the National Security Council wanted, and we would be tasked with studying a, say, a foreign installation or foreign targets and going after these people, knowing that they probably had access to the information we wanted. And you would develop a relationship over time and then build that trust and convince them to commit espionage. Nowadays, however, or at least in the last 15 or 20 years, we now have an entire cadre of officers who are called targeting officers. Those people would study a program. Let's take as a hypothetical, the Iranian nuclear weapons program, and they would study the structure of what we know about the Iranian nuclear weapons program, who the personalities are, who these people have maybe had previous contact with CIA case officers, how many of these people come outside of Iran and go to meetings where we can quote-unquote bump them, get to know them, and hopefully recruit them. So we have a new set of these targeting officers, which helps the case officers like me spot the folks who are likely to be uh, very good targets with access to critical national security information that we need.
0: Now, if you bump into an Iranian overseas attending a conference, let's say, or uh, uh, it's a member of the Iranian diplomatic delegation in, in some other country, uh, they know when you bump into them that you're an American and you're up to no good, right?
1: They might, and sometimes that's a good thing because if they want contact, then you know if they if they know that, and it's probably pretty obvious that they do, but yet they still persist in chatting with you, well, that's a good sign. So sometimes it's a good mm-hmm. thing for them to know hey, here I am. I'm a CIA officer. You know, I'm not the boogeyman. I'm really a human being just like you. And if I can relate to you on a human basis, that could be the beginning or the foundation of a trust relationship between us.
0: So it would be very important that you find commonality with the person. And that person might just want to defect, say, yeah, help me get out. Uh, right. and, and then your challenge is to say, no, no, we want you to stay in.
1: And and that's exactly it. Uh, we sometimes have these volunteers that have come out of a very sensitive program and or from, let's say, they're a foreign intelligence officer and they want to defect. They want to immediately come to the United States. And our job is to try and convince them, if possible, to stay in place and work in place as a clandestine source. We usually would uh, arrange some kind of uh, so-called contract. It's not really a legal contract, but an arrangement that if they would stay and work in place as a source for a year or two years, maybe three, that afterwards we would resettle them and their family in the United States. And of course, they would have a probably a sizable bank account to count on when they move to the United States. And we have an entire part of the organization, which is dedicated to resettlement of these folks, of these sources.
0: You know that that when you're saying that, when you're promising that to an agent, most of the time that's blarney, that the, the, there's a high chance that they're not going to survive. Eventually spies get caught for the most part. Um, and so they're putting themselves on the line. Their lives are on the line. It's very dangerous business of being a spy. Is that where the sociopath part comes in?
1: Maybe, but let me, let me argue that point just a bit. When I was on one of my tours, I think it was my third tour. I had a very senior case officer. Uh, He and I went to lunch one day and he said, Jim, you know, you're not doing these people any favors when you recruit them. And I said, Larry, if I actually thought that, I couldn't do that in good conscience. You know, I've never lost a source, not one. It happens? Yeah. A good friend of mine recruited one of the Russian spies that Aldrich Ames betrayed. The man was shot. And my friend asked to go to lunch with me. And we walked around the campus at Langley. And he said, Jim, if it hadn't been for me recruiting him, he'd still be alive. And my friend, he wept. And I said, well, Francis, you didn't betray him. Somebody else did. Now, none of my source, I never lost any of my sources. And so maybe it was there, you know, there, but for the grace of God, go I. But I honestly improved the situation, the life of everybody I recruited.
0: And yet it's been widely reported that the CIA lost many agents, in iran because of a communications screw up security screw up and the same for losing agents in uh, china because of also perhaps because of a communications screw up so it does happen people get arrested oh it happens and it ab- absolutely
1: happens and frequently frequently it is a communications uh snafu. Other times, though, it can be that the other side has recruited somebody on our side, a mole. You know, Victor Cherkashin, who was the KGB handler for both Ames and Hansen, he had a phrase which I really believe in. He said, it takes a spy to catch a spy. And that's very true in many cases. The only way we know that we're penetrated is when we recruit somebody on the other side who says, you've got a problem here's the problem's name, or here's what I know about the problem. And we narrow down the field of possibilities to, uh, you know, sometimes pretty quickly to who the suspect is. And so sometimes they're betrayed. And in my friend's case, when his guy was betrayed by Aldra James, but yeah, sometimes it is a, a commo issue. And I think the reason for that is that uh, we have a number of sources, and sometimes folks like to economize, I hate to say that, economize, on um, the communications network and use it for perhaps more than one source. Uh, that's, That's very unwise. It would be like meeting a source in a safe house and then meeting a different source in the same safe house. If just one of them makes a mistake, you've just condemned both of them. And, uh, or the same thing, we used to have something, I don't know if we still do or not, something called an accommodation address, where we would recruit a uh, friendly person abroad somewhere, and we would give this mailing address to a source who could then send some kind of secret writing to the accommodation address. Well, if you assign that accommodation address to more than one source and one source gets turned, you've just ruined everybody on that chain. So you need to insulate stovepipe. The things, and I, I personally I think sometimes the mistakes are made when they don't consult operations officers in constructing these networks. You know, they they come in, they've got their budget. Oh yeah, this thing is secure. Well, it really doesn't matter how encrypted it is if they turn one of those people. It's just you know basically look at the plain text uh, messages, and it really it really doesn't matter. So I think mistakes are made. Yes. Fortunately, none of them ever happened to any of my sources, but yes, sometimes that does happen.
0: What is it that you liked about spying? You spent decades working for CIA, um, some 30 years, uh, and you are a legend, I should tell people, in CIA for breaking up the AQ Khan Pakistani black market nuclear uh, program, Uh, in which uh, the Pakistani scientists uh, delivered nuclear materials to North Korea and and Libya. Um, What is it that you liked about?
1: There were a variety of things uh, in the A.Q. Khan case, or any WMD case, Weapon of Mass Destruction case. If you can save the lives of hundreds or thousands or hundreds of thousands of people in the case Khan was peddling a, a bomb that would have been Equivalent of a 14 kiloton weapon, same one that killed 140,000 people at Hiroshima. To me, Jeff, that that's a psychologically righteous thing to do to save people's lives, a lot of innocent people. In fact, a few years after we brought the network down, a good friend of mine, in 2011, during the time that Gaddafi was being overthrown, he said, "Jim, just imagine if your team had not disarmed." Uh, Libya, basically, you know, un, uncovered that network and disarmed Libya. Gaddafi might well have used those weapons against his own people or engineered a provocation in Europe, launched it across the Mediterranean just to create a distraction. So I think saving lives was a, a big psychological dividend for me. And then, quite selfishly, I enjoyed the uh, pursuit of a target. Again, I said earlier, I enjoy hitman. You know, somebody's plotting to go after somebody. Well, I don't assassinate them, but I recruit them. And there's a lot of the same techniques of going, you know, figuring out some place to be sidling up next to them. I'm not putting a gun to their head, but I'm talking to them and I'm convincing them to betray a trust, to commit espionage. A few years ago, I was the featured speaker at NSA's Security and Counterintelligence Awareness Day, and I gave a talk about the types of people I recruited and how I did it. And there was this young man in the back of the audience, there must have been five, six hundred people in this audience, and he raised his hand at the end of my speech and he said, Mr. Lawler, do you consider yourself to be a moral person? And I said, you know, that's a fair question, one I've pondered a lot. But the same way that I consider a young Marine Corps sniper who takes an Al-Qaeda bomb maker into his sights at a 1,000 yards, I think he's a moral person. And I think as long as I do it for national security reasons, that I'm a moral person. Where it becomes immoral, however, is how much I enjoy it.
0: (laughs) Speaking of WMD, let's talk about your newest novel, In the Twinkling of an Eye. Uh, You posit that uh, scientists have developed a new uh, biological weapon by doing some chromosome editing. Uh, Tell us about that.
1: So I wrote this well before the pandemic, and I consulted a number of eminent microbiologists and infectious disease uh, experts, Dr. Roger Brent, Dr. David Relman, Dr. Norman Kahn, and they all assured me that whatever I put in my novel, probably in the next 15 to 20 years could be possible. And I think recent events and recent developments, scientific developments have shown how frightening that possibility is, that you could edit a a gene. This is far, in my novel, it's far more effective than the gene editing technique known as CRISPR, but you could edit a gene and target specific people. If I got some of your DNA, I could do an assassination weapon against you that uh, is targeted only against you and not against anybody else. Or you could do it against an entire race of people if you were wanting to engage in genocide because there are certain predominant DNA characteristics in certain races of people. And, you know, you could do that. That's a scary, scary prospect. Now, in my book, okay, the, the fictional part is the rapidity of this you know the the you know it it goes very quickly and basically it just disassembles your genetic connections and you just dissolve into some kind of unspeakable goo but and mm-hmm. that's that's not likely now but in in the book a uh, russian scientist has been s- seduced into this program by Uh, basically the Russian intelligence service, the FSB, which is their domestic service, and with promises of the best equipment, the best computational equipment, everything else, all the best artificial intelligence. And his reason is because his daughter is suffering, his 12-year-old daughter is suffering from uh, leukemia, a, a type of leukemia, a genetic damage to her that was caused actually by him And his wife, they were both uh, in Chernobyl when Chernobyl blew up in 1986. And so he's got damaged genes, as did his wife. He's passed it on to his daughter. His daughter is suffering. She's dying. And he sees this as a chance to uh, basically save his young daughter. And in doing so, though, he almost accidentally constructs this genetic weapon, which he didn't want at all.
0: Now, let me ask you here. What you're saying reminds me of the Manchurian Candidate, the, the novel of the early 1960s by Richard Condon. And Condon said in an interview later that he had gotten a whiff of CIA's drug testing, uh, psychedelic uh, drug testing program, uh, and that gave him the imagination to conduct uh, to write the Manchurian Candidate. Did you get a whiff of something going on that the Russians or Chinese or the North Koreans were developing such a weapon? Is that what inspired you to construct this plot?
1: Well, we know that just as in my novel, that the FSB does have a super secret lab that they refer to, I believe, as Lab X. And we don't know what goes on in there. Um, the Russians, even though they are signatories to the Biological Weapons Convention, as is the United States and most other countries in the world, they really don't care. Uh, we've had defectors that said that they actually accelerated their program after they signed the Biological Weapons Convention. So I think there's, I in my heart, I honestly think that they probably are they, meaning the Russians, perhaps the Chinese, the North Koreans, are working on some uh, extremely devastating weapons. Now we can we can conduct research like that, but it's only research, not for us to develop an offensive capability, but as a defensive mechanism. And so I, you know, spent a number of years trying to encourage our young case officers and FBI special agents to recruit us more human sources inside of these adversarial programs and tell us what is really going on, because biological weapons and benign biological uses are so close. Unless you have a human source in there, it's very difficult to tell, is this benign research for for good, for pharmaceuticals, for the betterment of mankind, or is it something that they're going to use as a weapon?
0: Speaking of, of the Russians, if, if you were CIA director today, uh, or over the past year, would you alter CIA's collection priorities as a result of a, of their invasion of Ukraine, or would you stay on more strategic targets like the development of, of biological weapons and so on?
1: That's a, That's a difficult question, Jeff. I mean I'm glad I don't have a Director Burns's job because that would be a very, very difficult choice. I think personally, I think we should give the Ukrainians all assistance we can um whatever we can do i've actually made a few suggestions i don't know if they've filtered up to him or not but i think i think we're probably doing whatever we can uh, but you're right you're balancing the priority of you know saving ukraine because if we don't save ukraine all of that region is going to be at peril and you know drawing the historical analogy with 1938 with the sudetenland and the anschluss of what hitler did I and mean, putin won't stop and you can see that <laughs> the way Finland and Sweden immediately jumped on the NATO bandwagon that prior to the invasion of Ukraine, the public sentiment was totally against. Well, now I'm sure it's probably 80 to 90 percent in favor of joining NATO, because and the Baltics as well. They've got to see this as a supreme threat. But I would still filter more money, more resources into battling uh, weapons of mass destruction programs, be they biological or or nuclear.
0: Well, some agency of the U.S. government might be doing that, but we've just gotten word that actually the Defense Department has trimmed its budget on chemical biological warfare prevention programs.
1: I think that's insane. I, I heard the same thing, and I said, this is absolutely, this is stupid. This is really, you know, ludicrous. I know my good friend Andy Weber who used to be at the Pentagon, he was former CIA case officer, and he was head of their WMD programs. And I know he's horrified at the fact that they're cutting back on, on this. Um, these weapons are what we call game changers. They're very dangerous. And we need to funnel more resources, not fewer resources, into collecting in solid intelligence. And of course, I'm a human intelligence guy. You know, I'm like a hammer. All I see are nails. But Uh, We need to have all source collection against these very, very dangerous WMD programs. It could be Iran's, it could be Russia's, China's, wherever. We need to be focused on that and we need more resources, better training.
0: I've actually thought for a long time that the threat of biological warfare and chemical warfare against us was rather slim. It was a really money-making, profit-making possibility for American uh, contractors and so on, because one, Al Qaeda, et cetera, they like things that go boom. They like bombs, uh, and uh, and the question of whether their expertise, their capability of making these weapons, is really you know open open question. Uh, but uh, if now the equation seems to have changed because Russia, Putin, maybe. Uh, facing an existential question that if he loses in Ukraine, he may lose his job and maybe, maybe worse. And so that he might be provoked to do something really uh, 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 apocalyptic, I guess, would be the word, such as a a biological uh, or chemical weapon. Um, So has, have we adequately prepared to this point to defend against such weapons?
1: Probably not. I mean, we—I'm sure that the intelligence community and the Department of Defense do whatever resources you know they can manage against it. But it is a, I think, a significant threat, and we need to put more resources into detecting it, disrupting it. Uh, the Russians, for example they've accused the ukrainians uh ukrainians of biological warfare anytime a russians accuse you of something you can count on the fact that they're doing precisely that they um i've got some good friends at defense threat reduction agency and we had a pro- we have a program where we go into these nations that used to have the soviet union had biological weapons labs and we helped them convert those labs into laboratories for benign biological purposes for detecting diseases for preventing diseases well of course the russians are accusing the ukrainians and the defense threat reduction agency of having offensive biological weapons labs there that's that's ludicrous it is absolutely false that the Russians love to, you know, it's like Joseph Goebbels used to say, you tell a lie long enough and loud enough, and it becomes truth. And
0: well, that's we've what seen the, that, that with steal the steal-the-vote um, situation here. Of course, the best way to disrupt uh, uh, a weapons program in, in Russia or or any place is to get inside it, uh, to infiltrate it, and uh, to subvert it, uh, as we did with Stutniks, the uh reportedly joint u.s israeli operation to subvert the uh, iranian nuclear program um let me switch it to something else which a a great it's not thought about in a national security uh uh uh, framework so often but it's really tearing our country apart it's really become a national security threat which is fentanyl now you created uh, a kind of a a mock, uh, a false operation to get inside the uh, Pakistani nuclear export program. Um, can you see us using some sort of a similar technique to get inside the fentanyl exports from China?
1: Yeah, I mean, what you're talking about, we call this a supply chain operation, where you get inside somebody's supply chain and and disrupt it, you know, detect it, disrupt it, uh, destroy it. Uh, I Yeah, I think that would be possible. Um, you know, the Russians used fentanyl against the, uh, that theater when the, um, the, uh, the Chechen extremists took over a theater in Moscow. I forget the name of the theater, but they actually used a fentanyl-like gas into the uh, theater uh, to disable everybody. Unfortunately, they overdid it, and so they killed a lot of the uh, people being held hostage as well as the uh, hostage takers, the Black Widows is what they were called. Um, But yeah, the fentanyl threat is a uh, significant threat. It's so highly addictive. It's relatively cheap to make. If we thought we had a problem with cocaine, forget it. Fentanyl is far worse.
0: You can imagine what would happen if it were leaked that... uh... A U.S. intelligence agency was creating a firm to import fentanyl as a kind of a Trojan horse to get inside the uh, the supply program. That that would be I, yeah, that, uh,
1: that would be that would be something that doesn't meet the, the uh, New York Times front cover test. No, but sometimes that's the only choice you have is to get inside somebody's. Supply supply line to, you know, I I give the famous example of what um, uh, Felix Szerzhinsky, who was the founder of the uh, Cheka, the predecessor of the FSB and SVR, KGB, uh, he was faced with an existential challenge in 1917, 1918, of all of the counter-revolutionaries coming into Russia, trying to stamp out the Bolshevik threat. And so he decided that the best way to to fight the counter-revolutionaries was to become a counter-revolutionary, or at least pretend to be so. So he fanned out his Czechist agents across the Soviet Union, pretending to be counter-revolutionaries, and they systematically detected all of the supply lines, all of the assets, and they rounded them up, shot them all. Uh, Sidney Riley, ace of spies, was one of the spies that was ultimately caught and hanged. But he and and that's the same methodology that we could use or would have used in infiltrating a, a supply line. But yeah, you've got to make control on it. Surely you don't want to fan the flames of, say, fentanyl imports or exports from China and imports into the U.S. But the best way to get in and disrupt that would be to have people out there holding themselves out to be maybe a fentanyl buyer or a fentanyl supplier, a shipper, and And then ultimately uh, bring it down.
0: I think most people don't know that the CIA has a counter-narcotics center. Is this something, uh, this kind of operation that we're talking about, creating a a phony uh, uh, drug smuggling outfit? uh, uh, Is that something you think CIA could get a, a, a finding on, a White House permission to conduct such an operation? Is that your guess?
1: If I thought, you know, if it were well-organized, well-run, I would think so. I mean, if uh, I know when I was conducting, these are called covert action findings, uh, you know, basically the National Security Council, the president has to sign off on these things. And it has to be a darn good goal and um, something that's absolutely essential to national security. So if it were well done and and you have to when you present a program like this, you have to talk about not just the pluses, but all the potential minuses, uh, the ones that you just described. Uh, We could have horrible publicity if it were determined that a small band of CIA officers was supposedly encouraging the importation of fentanyl into the United States, when in fact they were doing exactly the opposite so but you have to be prepared for that and you have to have the backing of the senior members of congress and by that i mean both parties that they're on board and that this is a worthwhile goal and that we've got control of it i know when i was running my program against the con uh, network i had to brief senior members of the both parties and i found absolutely 100% support these people were they were wonderful they they saw the threat of nuclear weapons uh, be it from Iran or from Libya, and I had no opposition whatsoever.
0: There's significantly higher risk to the CIA's reputation and its personnel by creating a drug smuggling company than yeah. a nuclear interception company.
1: Agreed, agreed. But if if it were a well-planned, well-executed operation, I, I would not say no, I would say, let me look at this, you know, I... I frequently had to play devil's advocate in things. Uh, I'd go to a senior meeting and the director of operations, we'd be talking about something and he'd turn to me and he'd say, Now, Jim, give me a different opinion. And, you know, they welcomed a different opinion. Give me a red team on this. Why? What could go wrong in this? Uh, it's that old, and, and you have the old uh, law of unintended consequences. And you have to think about, okay, what if this happens? This happens. That doesn't mean we can insure against this. I I jokingly say, you know, CIA, that doesn't stand for Central Insurance Agency. There is inherent risk in all of this. But can we manage the risk? Can we minimize the risk? And do the gains far outweigh the potential losses, the potential risk?
0: (laughs) I have to ask this kind of thing that you would say at a meeting of senior officers at the at the uh, CIA, is that how you gained the moniker Mad Dog? <laughs> you became known as Mad Dog, and you seem to have embraced it.
1: Must be my gentle nature. <laughs> no, actually, I uh, I was posted in France. I used to make a morning run through the Bois de Boulogne, which is their big Central Park, you know, on the one on the western side of Paris. And I'd go for a long run, and one morning I ran past a German Shepherd who didn't bark or growl or anything. And I got about 10 yards past him and suddenly my leg was clamped in his jaws. And a German Shepherd has the most most pounds per square inch bite of any dog, I think, in existence. And so I got my leg outside of his mouth. I struggled forward. He was going to attack again. And I picked up a large branch and hit him upside the head and he ran off howling. And I struggled home got cleaned up, went into the embassy, got tetanus shots, and they said, you know, that dog was acting so erratic, you need to go to the Pasteur Institute here in Paris, where they've developed, of course, the rabies vaccine back in the 19th century, Louis Pasteur developed it. So I went to the Pasteur Institute, got a shot in each arm, and was told to come back in a week for one shot in the left arm, and then a week after that, a shot in the right arm. And if I did that within 30 days of being bitten, I would be immunized against rabies. But if I didn't get it, I would go progressively mad and surely die. I think there's been maybe only one person in history who ever survived rabies. It's that lethal. The lethality is almost 100%. Well, at the time, I was having some friction with some people back in Langley. So (laughs) I decided I'm going to make a list of all the people I'm going to bite. If I develop rabies, and so that's how my nickname was born.
0: I dare say that's the uh, the most dangerous uh, situation you found yourself in in a long career at CIA. Probably,
1: yeah. I was attacked to a
0: park in Paris. (laughs) (laughs) Well, Mad Dog, we'll leave it at that. This has been Jim Lawler, a legendary CIA officer, and uh, I suspect we'll have him back on the program again soon. Thanks, Jim. Thank you, Jeff. And that's it for this week's Spy Talk. Be sure to check out our entire archive available at our home at mswmedia.com or on Apple or wherever you get your podcasts. Also check out my Spy Talk newsletter on Substack. I'm Jeff Stein. This has been Spy Talk. See you again soon.
1: For more original reporting and insights like this, subscribe to spytalk.co on Substack and follow us on Twitter at talk underscore spy. If you enjoyed our podcast,
0: subscribe and leave a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.